Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 19 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.15, it is the first of a three-segment chat with hilarious actor Ed Begley Jr. on his new memoir, To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. And a mere seconds, Quinn Ewers will return for the Longhorns this Saturday in Fort Worth. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave. And do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Well, the big question for Longhorn fans this week was, will Quinn Ewers return to this Texas offense this weekend against TCU, maybe next weekend against Iowa State, but at the very latest by the Texas Tech game that last Friday of the regular season? And we now have our answer, courtesy of Steve Sarkeesian and his Thursday Zoom video media session with reporters who cover this Longhorn football team. And earlier today, Steve Sarkeesian did confirm that Quinn Ewers will, in fact, be the Longhorn starting quarterback against TCU this Saturday evening in Fort Worth, a game that kicks off at... 6.30 local time. And this question became an imperative one for Longhorn fans. Probably, if we're thinking realistically about it, in the second half of the Kansas State game. As Malik Murphy, who had gotten off to a torrid start, cooled off mightily as Kansas State made some adjustments. And Malik Murphy was required to go through his progressions a little bit more versus those first 15 to 20 scripted plays of the game. And while it was a bit of a mixed bag, there was a lot of bad to go in with the good in ways that helped Kansas State to fight their way back into the game, force overtime, and really have a chance to win in overtime if not for a valiant effort by this Longhorns defense. And while Texas does have a fairly easy schedule to end the regular season at TCU, at Iowa State, road games, yes, but road games against competition that isn't exactly gangbusters, especially on offense, and then finishing the year off with a home game against a Texas Tech team that has proven that the Big 12 runs through Lubbock with reckless abandon. Yes, the uh, Big 12 title doesn't run through Lubbock, but anybody who visits Texas Tech, that's not fair. Texas Tech is back to 500 in conference play, but they have had a very disappointing season in Lubbock. And Tech typically has a hard time winning games in Austin in years where they are the better football team and they are far inferior to what Texas has to offer right now. But even with those three games, you take can't take for granted that you had a quarterback who was possibly making his third ever college start and his first start on the road against a bad team, yes, but if some of the mistakes that you were seeing in the second half versus Kansas State rear their head in the first half, and TCU is given some short fields and a capable passing attack is able to take advantage well, then all of a sudden you are in a tough spot. 
But that will not be the case now with Quinn Ewers back at quarterback. And even though this does open things up for Steve Sarkeesian, I hope Sark is being wise about how he's calling the game on Saturday. What do I mean by that? Well, Quinn Ewers is not going to be a 100% this Saturday. That would probably require a week or two more of sitting out and not having to throw the football with bullets flying, so to speak. Guys from the opposition who are looking to hit him, to pressure him, to sack him, to make him pay if he does tuck and run and tries to pick up some extra yardage. Much like what we saw against Houston, a car crash that effectively ended his day and made an injury that he suffered to that AC joint in the third quarter even worse just a quarter later. So Quinn Ewers needs to be smart about how he is playing this game on Saturday. And it's up to his coaches and Steve Sarkeesian, because he does call the offense, to put him in protective positions, but positions that still allows him to succeed as a thrower. Maybe throwing a little bit more off of play action or giving him some of those quick one-read throws where it really is the ball being out in less than two or three seconds versus forcing him to scan the field. And yes, you do still have what is one of the best rushing attacks in this conference right now with Jonathan Brooks, a healthier C.J. Baxter. Jaden Blue has shown his capability in the last few games. Keelan Robinson, the gadget guy getting out there too. And having Quinn Ewers as a part of this offense, I think ensures that Texas will not be tripped up by the Horn Frogs this weekend. And this is a pretty consensus opinion right now, not just among Longhorn fans, but how about the kind folks in Vegas who set these lines? And well, these lines do move based on the action being placed one way or the other. Literally within an hour of Steve Sarkeesian making the announcement, the line in Texas TCU went from Texas favored by 10 to Texas favored by 12 and a half. So Quinn Ewers being in there, according to the odds makers and how people are placing money on this game, is making a field goal difference right now. I do wonder if this game ends up playing a little bit closer than the 12 and a half, just because Quinn does have some rust to knock off, and I don't think they're going to ask him to do too much throwing the football. You don't want him to have to sit back there too often, especially if you have this game in hand. Maybe that means giving C.J. Baxter a couple of extra carries. Because remember, Jonathan Brooks is a little bit banged up right now too. I believe he has a shoulder issue. Giving C.J. Baxter or some of the other running backs a little bit more work or operating more with that quick passing attack. Taking a deep shot here or there, but again, trying to avoid putting Quinn Ewers in harm's way. There's a chance he can get close to 100% this season, even if he's playing the game. But the big caveat there is that he's not taking big shots. And oh, by the way, Quinn Ewers, and I'm sure your coaches and teammates alike are making sure to drill this into your brain. I know at times you show a sort of toughness in picking up that extra yard or two and trying to get the first down. Not worth it on Saturday, bro. Let's go ahead and slide a yard short. If it's third down, guess what? Steve Sarkeesian may very well go for it on fourth down. If it's fourth down, well, then you live or stay healthy to see another drive. How about think of it like that? 
ultimately the combination of uh, this Texas offense with Quinn Ewers back there, this Texas defense, while they are susceptible to a team that can throw the football, the front line has really stepped up their play over the last few weeks to make that less of an issue, to go along with better communication between the front and the back end and amongst back end guys. You may see Jalen Catalan back out there. I think the best safety combination with Jalen Catalan healthy for however long that ends up being is probably going to get hurt at some point in this game. That's just the unfortunate nature of things for him in 2023. But a Catalan-Derek Williams safety combo looks really nice. Next to Jade Barron at nickel. Ryan Watts. Maybe a little bit underwhelming at quarterback this year, but he is still one of your best corners. Muhammad back there, the true freshman. Terrence Brooks has had an up-and-down season, but he obviously can give you some reps at cornerback. Gavin Holmes, the Wake Forest transfers, provided some nice things this year too. But this Texas defense will once again prove itself as the biggest reason why you should believe in this football team the rest of the way. Why they have a great chance of making it to and winning their very last Big 12 championship and may find their way into the college football playoff. And matchup dependent, Texas is going to be close, if not favored in that game too. And so it'll be an exciting month or so for Longhorn fans. That is the hope. And I think that excitement just got a little bit more palpable with Quinn Ewers deciding that he's coming back this weekend. All right, coming up, it is the first of a three-segment conversation with the hilarious actor Ed Begley Jr. on his new memoir. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Ed Begley Jr. is an actor and environmental activist who has appeared in countless TV shows and movies over the years, from his Emmy-nominated performance in St. Elsewhere to This Is Spinal Tap, numerous Christopher Guest films, Arrested Development, Better Call Saul, and much more. And he's just released his memoir to recount it all. It's titled To the Temple of Tranquility and Step On It. It's available now wherever books are sold. Ed, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Trey, it's good to be with you again. Yes, it's a pleasure. Uh, a couple of times in a couple of weeks. I hope your travels have been good since then. I know you went to Chicago to talk about the book, and uh, I was looking forward to reading it after the first time we spoke, and it did not disappoint. So congratulations on that. And I guess the starting point for us today is how did your uh, your old friend, the, uh, the late, great Carrie Fisher, uh, get major credit for you writing this book? You know, she influenced me in so many important ways. She was a wonderful actress and then made a big turn in her life and became a, a best-selling author. You know, she wrote uh, Postcards for the Edge, uh, Delusions of Grandma, Surrender the Pink. She wrote all these great books and quick, quickly proved herself as uh, a talent in another field besides acting. She's an amazing woman, very smart woman, and I've known her since I was about 14 years old. And... She was a good deal younger. She was maybe eight or nine. Then I met her with her mother, who'd done a movie with my dad called uh, Unsinkable Molly Brown. Your dad, Ed, is obviously or was a legendary actor in his own right. Oscar winner, Tony winner as well. What was Ed Sr. like as a dad, though? He was a great father, really. 
he did the best he could with what he was given and he had a hard time of it growing up but he did very very well he was a wonderful actor and he was so good at his craft he made it look easy i thought well i can do that i see my dad doing it you know if i'd been if my dad had been a plumber i think i'd be doing plumbing today i'd be fitting pipe but i wanted to do what he did and he made it look so easy i didn't think i needed classes or to mess with anything like that going to acting school thought i'm, I'm pretty charming get me a series and thank god i didn't get a series <clears throat> but i auditioned for about 10 or 12 parts over the years from age, let's say 10 to age 17, didn't get a thing tray for obvious reasons. Imagine the son of a plumber going, well, I see what you do. You kind of put pipe together. That looks easy. I'll do that. You have to train, you have to apprentice, you have to work. Finally, when I started to do some, some training, I began to work as an actor in 1967. Well, you also write that the first 30 years of your life, uh, you know, this book is good for so many reasons. That includes you being very forthright about things that some people might be embarrassed about. And you admit the first 30 years of your life, uh, because of who your dad was and what your general upbringing was, was uh, full of good fortune and privilege. But you were completely oblivious to that. Part of that might have had to do with the fact that you had a daily regimen of drugs and booze from 1967 to 1979. Ultimately, you get a grip on that, of course, but there were some fascinating moments in between there. For instance, what was it like smoking a joint with Charlie uh, Charles Manson? It was, you know, when I met him, he was just some hippie guy. It was 1968, a year before those horrible murders. And so we went up to the this main house near a friend's house. He lived in a tree house near a saloon, but it wasn't a real saloon. It was part of the Spawn Ranch. We went up and smoked a joint with some hippies that were living in the main house, and they seemed rather innocuous. One of them played some songs. He was, I didn't hear any of the songs, but he claimed to be a musician. So I, I couldn't help him. I was uh, trying to be an actor. I didn't know many musicians back then in 68. So a year later, I look in the paper. I called my friend James Jeremiah, who I still see nearly every day. I said, James, aren't these the people that we smoked a joint with up at that house near your friend David Curley? He said, Absolutely. It's the Manson gang. We smoked a joint with the Manson gang. Did you Crazy. catch a weird weird vibe from them when you were hanging out? Not particularly. I'd love to one of them had pretty crazy eyes. That would be Charlie, hmm. you know, the ringleader. He had kind of wacky, he looked a little wacky in the eyes, but he wasn't other than that, didn't say or do anything too extraordinary where I thought, wow, I sure dodged a bullet being around him. But the truth is, I probably did. I'm glad I didn't give my address or phone number. Yeah, I'll help you with your music. Send the tape here. <laughs> I might have gotten a visit. God help me. Yeah, seriously. Now, I'm somebody who's a big nerd for stand-up comedy, so I was especially interested to learn that you did stand-up for several years in the late 60s into the, uh, into the 1970s, which included a routine with Michael Richards. He of Cosmo Kramer fame from Seinfeld. You guys even performed at the Comedy Store the very first week that it was open. Now, the Comedy Store has become one of the epicenters for stand-up comedy over the last 50 or so years now. Did you have any sense in that first week that it would uh, blow up to be something as big as it's become? No. Before that, the clubs you wanted to play at were the Troubadour and the Ice House, clubs like that in L.A. and other clubs in other parts of the country and parts of the world. You would open up for a musical act. I'd open up for Don McLean or Logan the Messina or John Sebastian or Poco, Neil Sedaka, Can't Heat, all these different people I would be an opening act for. But sometimes the the comic was the main act, Richard Pryor, you know, uh, Albert Brooks, these wonderful comedians who would be the main act because they were 
Steve Martin, very successful, but all of them started as an opening act. And so we had no idea what we were doing, Michael and I. Well, Michael had a great gift and I was kind of ha- trying to hang on by my fingernails to his talent. But, uh, you know, we thought we had invented improv. We didn't know there was a Viola Spolin and a book about act- about improv acting and we didn't know the rules. We had no idea what we were doing. Avery Schreiber came to see the act, gave us some good tips. We didn't really listen to him. You also did your own solo thing as a stand-up comedian, and you uh, you admit that you were a prop comet, but pr- prior to the era of uh, of Carrot Top and Gallagher, and you even incorporated a, uh, a cop routine where you dressed up like a cop uh, to come out on stage to. How did this get you into quite a bit of trouble at one point in the 70s? Well... The, the bit would usually piss people off at the outset because I get the sound guy, you know, to announce on Mike before I came out. We're going to get to the main act in a little while. Dave Mason will be coming out to play some of his wonderful music. But beforehand, we have a member of the Los Angeles Police Department who's here, wants to talk to you kids about some problems in the community. And people would boo. But the ones who were booing the loudest would soon be laughing the loudest. And I started to talk on drugs to help the kids to stay away from drugs that became more and more absurd. Pretty soon, everybody realized it was a joke, and they'd be laughing pretty. You know, it was the 70s, so drug humor was big. And uh, I did that. Then I came out. I had a changing screen behind me. I changed into, like, a thing with a long-haired wig, and I had an IV into my arm. I was a rock musician that was playing not any instrument because I was part of the capitalistic pig society, but I would play my body so I would be pure and not (laughs) waste any energy on building an instrument. And then I would come out with a nun's habit on. I had a thing called the nun story. And then I had uh, a bunch of other different insane things. But I, I think, Trey, I wanted to make my life as complicated as possible. I had a slide projector, finally. I had a audio playback. You know, how can you make your life as difficult as possible on the road? Lugging all this stuff around and getting to work right every night. My friend Tony Amatulo came and saved me. He was a friend of Bruno Kirby's, my dear, dear acting friend, Bruno. So, but one the night you mentioned, I don't want to avoid that. I went out in front of the Troubadour one night, walking over to Tata's. And the cops, the sheriff's department came and arrested me because I was in a full, legitimate, real LAPD uniform. You could go and buy it at Sam Cooke Uniforms. You could That's where the cops bought their uniforms. But I didn't have a real badge. I had like a security officer badge. But people don't even look at badges. I look like an LAPD officer. And so that was kind of the, you know, the blessing of doing the bit. You had to look kind of real. But out on the street, I should have taken the shirt off before I walked next door. I spent the weekend in jail doing some of my best comedy material to keep their minds off other things, Trey. <laughs> we won't go any further there. People just need to buy the book to hear about that. You going from uh, the drunk tank to actual jail and having to figure w- your way there. Now, did you stop doing stand-up because the acting tr- career really started to take off in, in the mid-1970s? Exactly. That was the main reason. The other reason, I'd just been married in 1976. We had uh, one child on the way, another one. A little while later after that first wonderful birth. So I had these kids. I didn't want to be in saloons anymore working, which is what a comedy club or a nightclub was back then. You know, it was a place where they served alcohol and guys like me would drink before the set, you know, to try to get, relax your nerves. And so I was not a guy who could have one drink. One's too many and a million's not enough. <laughs> it's kind of my mantra. And so uh, I stopped doing comedy because the acting picked up. And then, uh, you know, it just life became a lot easier with somebody five minutes, Mr. Begley. And they had the sound handle. They had all the lighting handle. I didn't have to worry about anything where I put my little lavalier mic or other stuff that I was doing to do my act. 
no slide projections I had to manage, no audio playback. So it's a much easier life as an actor. I, I, I decided to make things simpler. That's probably a good idea. One of the roles that really uh, put you on the map as an actor, Ed, was uh, your performance of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. As a matter of fact, at some point you get invited to a dinner party at John Lennon and Yoko Ono's place. And while you're trying not to freak out because it's John Lennon after all, they end up realizing that they recognize you from that show and they start nerding out to you and just how good of a job you were on that TV series. That had to have been a pretty surreal moment for you. The whole thing was surreal because Harry Nelson sucker punched me. He said, you want to have dinner with Una and I, his wife, Una? We're going to have dinner with some friends, is all he said, friends. So then we get in a car, we head over to the Dakota. Wait a minute. I know some friends of his that live in Dakota. Can't be that. He would have prepared me for that. Who opens the door but John Lennon, Yoko right behind him. Hello, come on in. Welcome. <laughs> well, wait a minute. I know this. Who, who's this? I know you. And we sat and he couldn't quite, quite figure out where he knew me from. John Lennon saying that I'm trying to keep my face from crystallizing and falling to the floor in pieces. And he's saying, I know you. I sit down. We talk for a while. Finally goes, Yoko, it's a deaf mute for Mary Hoffman. Mary Hoffman, look. What about Louise Lasser? What's she like? You know, and he was like a, a fanboy about Louise Lasser and the show and Norman Lear and Mary Kay Place. It was just surreal, but wonderful to meet a, a talent like that, to spend time with him in his apartment. I, I'm just one lucky guy. He is actor Ed Begley Jr. joining me for a handful of segments. Talk about his new memoir, To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. Coming up, segment two of three with Ed on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Back with actor Ed Begley Jr. We're discussing his new memoir, To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. You can get it now wherever books are sold. You had a couple of uh, big-time movies come out in 1978. One, which is uh, maybe a little bit more self-serving considering your comedic background, is the movie Blue Collar that had Richard Pryor in it. Now, obviously, by this point, Richard Pryor had proved had uh, established himself as one of, if not the best up stand, uh, best stand-ups of that time. Were you able to form any sort of connection with Richard during your time on the set together on Blue Collar? I was very careful. I was very careful with Richard not to push too hard because he wanted to just keep to himself and concentrate on the character. But there came an opportunity one night. We all played poker. All the guys on the show got together and had a card game and at some point I couldn't help myself. I was right next to him. I said, Richard, I just want to let you know those two albums changed my life. Your brilliant comedy albums. Thank you. Thank you. I said, what albums are those? <laughs> Uh-oh. Now I got to say the title of the album with that word in it. So I, with, without a beat, thank God I did it very quickly. I said, well, uh, that black man's crazy and bicentennial black man are great albums. And he laughed his ass <laughs> off. He was trying to get me to, be flustered and I went right for it. I just segued to another word and he appreciated. He knew, he, he liked that I knew that I didn't have the right to use that word and we were friends ever, forever after that moment. Now, the other movie that came out in 1978 that you were a part of just has a mind-blowing cast. I'm referring to Going South, whose cast included your friend John Belushi, 
Christopher Lloyd, Danny DeVito, a young Mary Steenburgen, and it was starring and directed by Jack Nicholson. How Jack actually helped you to become a better actor during filming? He did just by watching his work when I was 15 and 16 years old in those Roger Corman movies. I just thought, who is this guy doing something wonderful and different and dangerous? He's just great. But then on that movie, it was Mary Steenburgen's first movie, and she was wonderful in it. But I had... I had learned to be relaxed in front of the camera after a few years of working. Uh, I had been on this show called Room 222 a few times and finally gotten to the point where I wouldn't like for you, oh, the camera's dialing around, here's the camera, what do I do now? The lens is closed my head, what do I do, what do I do? You just, I got very relaxed around the camera and unfortunately spent the next decade or more being relaxed around the camera, which is not very interesting to watch, Trey, being a relaxed around the camera. So I did the first take on this movie going south with Jack Nicholson playing this character named Whitey, who's like the the bank manager or something. He works at the bank and he's, he holds me up at gunpoint to take Mary Steenburgen's money out of the bank and put it into a wagon. And he's about to drive away. And I said, I couldn't figure you, I wouldn't have figured you do this to Julia, her character's name. And after the first take, Jack says, that all you're going to give me bags. I thought, oh no, I've just disappointed Jack Nicholson, because I've idolized him for years. Now I'm working with him. The reason I got the part, it was a, he was doing me a favor to give me this very small, like six-line part, five-line part, whatever the hell I had. And I couldn't even do one of the lines properly. And I was just freaked out. He was not being unkind, but he was trying to get me to do something. And I took that energy, if you will, that adrenaline where I was scared to death and turned it into something else, into another form of energy, I finally had some light behind my eyes. And I thought of all the wonderful work he had done as an actor with a chicken salad sandwich scene and five easy pieces, many other things. And so I, I, I turned it on and finally was able to find the switch to turn it on because of Jack. And I've had pretty good luck working ever since. He changed my life. Did you ever talk with him about that afterwards? How that was a really epiphanous moment for you as an actor that he helped to inspire? I have. I've mentioned it to him probably more than once. He just tells me to shut up. <laughs> so uh, as we previously talked about, you wrote that for the first 30 years of your life, you were completely oblivious to your good fortune and privilege. And that 30 years comes to an end at the end of the 1970s. So what clued you into this and how did you that change your uh, perspective going forward? It was so funny when I first went to Screen Actors Guild to register as an actor in 1967, I actually wanted to change my name, Trey to like James Begley or to something else. And they said, well, you do you have a legal driver's license for that? I said, no, it says Ed Begley Jr. So you can't be Ed Begley, of course. We already have an Ed Begley on the rolls, but you could be Ed Begley Jr. I went, oh, okay. I reluctantly said yes to that name, thinking I don't want to be my father's son all the time. I want to be my own person and what have you. And don't compare me to him. I'm a different person. I look different. I act different. Everything's different. Don't do that. Forgetting the incredible bonus it was being Ed Begley's son. Huge. I won the lottery, Trey. I didn't even buy a ticket. Hmm. Number one, they're going to remember my name. I don't care if you're Ed Begley, Rob Reiner, Liza Minnelli. They're going to, number one, remember your name. Number two, they're going to be kind of rooting for you. They're comfortable around you, this new guy coming into the room for an interview because they, I worked with your dad on the Philco Playhouse. We did Fibber McGee and Molly, too. We did Richard Diamond, Private Detective on radio. I love the old man. Good luck, Eddie. Top of page eight. Go for it. And that's the way it was. People were, A, you know, rooting for me, and B, 
able to remember my name. So when you're trying to get a job interview, you know, there's nothing better than, than having those two factors taken care of. I got a lot of work. I think, you know, as a young actor starting out because I was his son and I finally fortunately started to learn what I was doing. But yeah, I'm definitely an early Nepo baby before there was even that term. <laughs> now, nobody should be surprised to learn that you credit uh, St. Elsewhere. Your role on St. Elsewhere is the job that really changed your life. Numerous primetime Emmy, uh, Emmy nominations, a Golden Globe nomination as well. But how did it help you to further grow as an actor? I had the good fortune when I got the role on St. Elsewhere to uh, know some doctors fairly well. And I had been on fishing trips with them and what have you. So I spent even more time with them and concluded that they never acted like the doctors on TV I saw in the past. Ben Casey or Dr. Kildare, those people that are very serious about the thing. We're going to cut into the heart now. Everybody focus because we're da, 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 give this speech that you've never heard once in an operating room or emergency room. <laughs> the other thing was just the good fortune of being the lucky guy that I am. Because I went into St. Elsewhere, Trey, not to audition for the part that I did for six years. I auditioned for the part of Dr. Peter White because that part was a regular on every episode. I didn't get that part. They gave it to this guy, Terrence Knox. Okay, woe is me. I got another bit of bad luck. They threw me a bone tray and gave me this one or two line part called Dr. Victor Ehrlich. But something clicked with the writing, something clicked with Bill Daniels, and they started to write for my character. The part of Dr. Peter White was killed off in the third season. My character was on nearly every every episode but one for six years, and it was one of the more popular characters in the show. So once again, you know, I... What I dreamed for was paid off in pence, but what I got myself was in pounds and, and thousands of them. So part of you doing such a great job on St. Elsewhere led to you getting to host Saturday Night Live in 1984. I mean, the cast at the time was incredible. Billy Crystal, your friend Christopher Guest, Martin Short, Julia, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Harry Shearer, Jim Belushi, and Larry David was one of the writers was that experience as magical as I would assume it would be, especially for someone with a comedic background like yourself? Any comic that ever lived at that time wanted to do Saturday Night Live and to get the opportunity to do that in 1984 because I was on an NBC show. I think that's why I got lucky enough to be on it. Hmm. I wasn't the greatest comedian by a long shot, but I was a regular on a, that show, St. Elsewhere, and NBC, you know, Saturday Night Live was an NBC show. So I was asked to host it, and it's just unbelievable. Every day was like you died and gone to heaven. You get to participate in the writing with the writers of the, the show. Then you get to rehearse it. And there's a wonderful formula to the show. They keep telling you all week, Monday when you get together, they tell you, now, there's an 8.30 show that we do. We don't use much of it. We use a little bit of it in case something goes wrong at the 11.30 real show, the kind of more important live show. Sorry for the barking in the background. You're good. So, but the 8.30 show will be going to be a catastrophe. Don't freak out. Tuesday. Oh, by the way, did we mention the 8.30 show is going to be a little bumpy? Yeah, you told me. Wednesday. Now that 8.00. Yeah, yeah, I heard it already. Shut up. So, yes, you're going to tell me about the 8.30 show? Finally, you do it. The 8.30 show is beyond a catastrophe. Everything goes wrong. And then the brilliant structure of that is by the time you do the 11.30 show, just a short time after you've wrapped the 8.30 show, you have no adrenaline left. Your adrenal glands have been squeezed dry. You're just kind of up there and you you know all the lines, you do everything because you've done it, you know, nearly all week. And you just did it where everything went wrong. 
you do it now and nobody's afraid or nervous or anything. It's just a wonderful structure. Lauren Michaels is a, a brilliant man. He came back to the show uh, after that brief uh, hiatus that he took from it. And the show has been great for now since 1976, isn't it? Uh, 75 or six. Yeah. And I don't know how much of a rapport you established with Larry David uh, during the week of rehearsal and then shooting the show itself, but you've obviously been a part of a couple of Curb Your Enthusiasms over the years, uh, playing Dr. Winokur. Do you have, you know, considering that Larry is a real life version of the character that he plays on Curb and he has all these awkward interactions with folks, do you have a good Larry David story out of curiosity? Yeah, my Larry David story story has to do with Saturday Night Live because he had written a number of sketches for that show in the years that he was there. He was there for a few years. None of them ever made the air. This episode that I did, a wonderful sketch. They were all wonderful, by the way. I saw some of them. I had occasion somehow, I think, to hear about them or see them or something in script form. And they were all brilliantly funny. Every bit as funny as any Seinfeld episode. It was that wonderful formula by making some little tiny thing into a, some molehill into a mountain. And uh, it was just brilliant. And that one made the air. So I felt honored to be part of this brilliant man's you know, first sketch that that uh, was on Saturday Night Live. He was a genius back then, and he is to this day. Seinfeld, and then now Curb for many years. He's he's unbelievable and a person alive. He's a great stand-up comic. He just I met him on Fridays with Michael Richards in 1980, and he was great. You know, doing that just an amazing comic. He is the hilarious actor Ed Begley Jr. Spending some time with me today to talk about his new memoir to the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. Coming up, one more segment with Ed on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Final segment with actor and environmental activist Ed Begley Jr. You know him from numerous things over the years, including St. Elsewhere. This is Spinal Tap, numerous Christopher Guest films, Arrested Development, Better Call Saul, and more. We're discussing his new memoir to the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. You describe your life as a sort of Forrest Gumpian type of existence and... To just read some of the stories and some of the people involved, I mean, I think that's a really accurate way to put it. I mean, uh, there's a story. I'm not even going to ask you about all of them. We don't have time today. But uh, you have a story involving uh, involving not just starring in a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but actually photographing him at a time where the uh, acting roles had run dry for you and him really helping you out there. you got a, a friendship and a story involving Marlon Brando as well. He calls you up and wants you to be a part of a project. You're excited because you're like, what movie am I about to get to do with Marlon Brando? But it turned out to be a completely different type of project involving electric eels. What was the project and what was your response to Marlon as he was proposing this to you? I had known Marlon for a few years at this point, and I had figured out the rules. The rules were he didn't want to talk about acting, writing, directing, puppetry, claymations, train seals, anything to do with show business. He did want to talk about solar panels, wind turbines, drywall, steel galvanized pipe, you know, versus copper. He just loved all that kind of tech talk and stuff like that, you know, kind of construction material stuff, building. He knew I built some furniture. He loved all that stuff. So I get a call that's very different one day, Trey. The message, I play the message, and it's Marlon. goes, Ed the bagel. 
This is Brand Flakes. Give me a shout. There's a project I want to do with you. I've got all the financing. I have distribution. I've always wanted to work with you on something important, and this is it. Let's let's get together and talk about it. Now, this is a different phone call. He's got a project he wants to do with me. He has all the financing, has distribution. You know, it's clear he's got this wonderful script that I somehow might have a shot, or he's going to give me a role in it. So I race up there. He starts talking about how many volts an electric eel has. And I go, what are you talking about? He says, we're going to power every house in America with electric eels. He had the funding for this project. He had distribution of the electric eel technology. He had all the financing, you know. It had nothing to do with acting. And so I I just couldn't believe it. I thought he was winding me up, Trey. He actually wanted to put electric eels in a pool and run his house with it. I said, Marlon, I don't think that's quite practical, but... Why is everything no with you? It was always, you know, he thought I would. I was too negative. I didn't want to be negative around him, but I knew better than to be a sycophant. Oh, Marlon, what a great idea! You're so brilliant. That kind of a guy would be out halfway through the the session with him. But he he loved to just have people come up and talk. People much more of greater notoriety than me, than me. But I got to come up there quite often because of, uh, you know some environmental things and some other things we shared in common. Great guy and what an act, my God. You know, you mentioned another uh, close friend of yours a little bit earlier, Bruno Kirby, who died, unfortunately, uh, a number of years ago. Uh, How did Bruno influence you as a person, Ed? I was raised by my father and other people in the household. It was often kind of a Darwinian you know, experience, you know, survival of the fittest was kind of the message of the day. Now, my dad was also very kind and loving in many ways, too. And I'm not trying to make my dad out to be an ogre. He's nothing like that. But it was more kind of, you know, grow up and keep up and shut up. But with Bruno, he just really, he cared so much for people and people clearly that couldn't help his career or help him in any way. There's this guy called Leopold Trieste. He'd worked on the Godfather 2 movie with Bruno. He was a guy who spoke Italian only, a Sicilian only, and he he didn't know anybody in America, couldn't speak English, but Bruno took him around all kinds of wonderful places in America, showed him the country, spent time with him, included him in Thanksgiving plans. That's just what he did. He didn't care about enriching himself in any way. He always wanted to be the best actor, the best person, the best friend. And he succeeded on all fronts. He died in 2006. And there's many friends like uh, Jeff Goldblum and Adam Arkin and Tony Amatulo and me and lots of other female friends in that O'Toole that still, you know, miss that wonderful guy. He was a great guy. Why do you credit your friend Christopher Guest with saving your career? Oh, prior to that, I had gone through the whole decade of the 90s really only doing two studio movies. I could do a movie with Hulk Hogan, you know, an independent film with Hulk Hogan called Santa with Muscles, but I wasn't doing any, uh, what I would call real movies for a while. For the whole decade of the 90s, I had six weeks on Greedy, and I had one week on a show, uh, a movie called Batman Forever. That's it, seven weeks, the whole decade. Not because I was blackballed, my name wasn't on a list in a drawer somewhere, but I just gave people the creeps you know, because I was known as the environmental guy. And more importantly, I had also been in three movies, which I was one of the co-stars of, 
and they all three tanked now and they got bad reviews. You can get bad reviews, but if you don't do good business and you're in three of those movies, there's a three strikes law in California too for movies. And so I was, you know, out in the back lot there for a while. I was, you know, in movie jail for a few years. And Chris Guest said, you want to be in best in show? You play the desk clerk. I went, absolutely. Ever since then, him putting me in that movie, he bailed me out. He got me out of movie jail and I've been working in films big and small ever since. So once again, thank you, Chris, for everything. And, you don't really uh, talk about your time on Arrested Development in this book. As a matter of fact, you don't spend a ton of time sharing stories from the set. There's a little bit of that in there, but but not as much as one might expect. Do you have a fondest memory from your time of shooting Arrested Development? That was not, not only one of the all-time uh, great sitcoms, but I thought you were brilliant in that, too. You're very kind. I got to play Stan Sitwell, this guy that had alopecia, so occasionally different, you know, like eyebrows would come off and stick to the other actor and what have you when I'm giving him a hug. That happened with Will Arnett. I can't remember if it was scripted or not, but it was so damn funny. I was fighting, fighting to not crack up. And that son of a bitch, uh, Jeffrey Tambor, he literally would set out to try to crack crack me up. You know, I'm in close up here. There's a the camera. He'd be over here to the side of the camera where he can't be seen going, what, Ed, what, why? Oh, really? He would just be totally trying to mess with me to get me to crack up. And I, I took every bit of strength I have to not crack up on camera. He's a very funny man, Jeffrey Tambor. I've known him for years. Brilliant, brilliant actor. Now, not that you've kept this completely private, but this book has let more people into an aspect of your life that has been present for you since 2004 and that you were officially diagnosed with in 2016, and that is Parkinson's disease. Where is modern medicine with the management and treatment of Parkinson's disease right now, Ed? There's probably no good time to get Parkinson's, but this is, I think, right now a less horrible time to get it because with the dopamine they can give you, carbidopa, levodopa, combinations that they can give you, you can actually be something like this, which is not too bad. Wow. Yeah. So that's where it's at today. I do all that stuff, the AMA-sanctioned stuff like carbidopa, levodopa. And then for extra credit, my wonderful wife found some things that are also more holistic things that do not contradict but work well with this AMA-sanctioned neurologist-given uh, carbidopa levodopa. And that is hyperbaric chambers helped me a lot mm. to get some real oxygen infused time in a hyperbaric chamber. Uh, something called NAD has helped me. Yeah. Something called glutathione, uh, stem cells, the stem cell of America, all these things. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not prescribing what people should do. You know, see a, a licensed doctor and all this stuff also quantifiably, though, has made me feel better. All the other stuff, too. So, urge people to do what they think is right. And, you know, there's a lot to be to, to be discovered out there. And I've been very fortunate. I've had it since 2004, very clearly, and to have it this many years and still be doing this well, I'm doing something right. Cool. Well, uh, best of luck with that, Ed. And uh, last question now. This is something you address earlier in the book, but I think it's a good way for us to end here. Why does the phrase, this is it, which you borrowed from an Alan Watts essay, resonate with you so much? Because prior to reading that wonderful book titled This Is It and really grasping its meaning, I was always like my dad, running around all the time, racing here, racing there. And I hope he had some moments of serenity in his life. 
you know, I, I seem to remember he had a few, but I wanted a little more than that. So I realized that the, just the title of the book, the book in the window at the bookstore, I grasped its meaning and got it even more by reading the book, of course. This is it. This moment with you and I, Trey, right here, right now, this one is really all there is. We can remember yesterday. We must to grow as a person and plan for tomorrow. We must do that, too. But to really, as much as you can, live in this moment right now, right down through the center of it as we sit here together talking and realize that this moment is actually sublime. We don't have to get enlightened. We're already enlightened by just accepting that fact. And uh, it's kind of wonderful. It's a wonderful book. It'll give you some great details about it, the book, This Is It. But any of Alan Watts' brilliant work, I I think, is quite helpful for people. And there's many other people who are very good who have... uh, you know, a path similar to that that they've taken that can be of help. But I really believe that's true. This is at this moment right now. Here it comes again. This is all we get. Enjoy it. He is Ed Begley Jr. The new book, it's his memoir. It's, I can almost guarantee, going to end up on my year-end best books list. It is titled To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. You get it now wherever books are sold. Ed, thank you so much for the time once again, and uh, congratulations on this book. Thank you so much for all your kind words, Trey. You're very nice, man. It's good to see you again. Thank you so much for hanging out today. Do appreciate it. We'll be back tomorrow at 6. That includes a two-segment conversation with one of the best sports handicappers around, Sammy P, helping me break down the weekend in college and pro football. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the evening and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.